Hi, and welcome to Straight Shot Radio. My name is Johnny Slick, and I'm the founder and head coach at Straight Shot Training. Albert Einstein once said, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. Now, obviously, Einstein is infinitely smarter than me, but I feel like I get what he's saying there. I'm a coach in an industry that's constantly changing as new studies come out, as trends come and go, and continuing education is required for me to maintain my certifications. But all of this has taught me that there's just so much that we don't know about health, nutrition, and exercise. Now, as a younger coach, I was much more opinionated, even more so than I am now, and sometimes easily influenced when it came to my stances on exercise science hot topics, particularly if I it was within a group that I was in or coaches that I looked up to when I was starting out as a young coach. Now, after spending over a third of my life in this same career, I have zero problem admitting when I was wrong before. And I'm completely comfortable now with changing my mind when I'm presented with new information or better information or scientifically backed information that is contrary to the way that I thought before. So that's what I want to go through today. This is a list that I came up of things that I think that I was wrong about or things that I've changed my mind on or things that I'm comfortable admitting we just don't have the answer to when I thought that I knew the answers before. Now, some of this stuff is stuff that you and I will agree on that maybe we didn't agree on before that I've changed my mind about. Some of this stuff is stuff that maybe we used to agree on. And when I give you my opinion on it today, we're going to have a difference in opinion on it. And that's totally okay. It, we need to be accepting of differing opinions when it comes to exercise science because maybe I'm researching something about a topic that's different to something that you are researching when it comes to that topic. And when we have this difference in opinion, it can open up a conversation where we can say, well, I read these studies and saw this, 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 and this that said this, and you can show me some different information and we can learn from each other. Because for a lot of these things, the answer is, it depends. And I know that I say that a lot, because it depends on your goals, or your personal biology, or your exercise history. I mean, there's a lot of things I'm going to list in here that, that really the answer is, it depends. So people need to be okay with having a difference in opinion, and that not destroying their friendship. And I feel like that we really should have learned this when it came to the election uh, in this past November. And something else that I've seen this year, both politically and on social media and just just over this entire year, is that I feel like people have a, a hard time admitting they were wrong or changing their mind on something. And, and a lot of it's out of fear because people view them as a flip-flopper or uh, having their opinions easily changed. Or I think it's actually better if you are presented with new information and you can come out and say, I was wrong about this because I learned this, that that's way better than being wrong, being presented with new information or better information, and still thinking that you're right, even whenever everything else is flying in the face of that. So hopefully, uh, this can be something that can be taken far beyond 
my scope, which is exercise science, and you can use this to apply to maybe other things in your life that uh, you realize maybe you were wrong about or uh, somebody else who was wrong about and they changed their mind, that it's okay to be to admit that you were wrong. It's, it's okay to have information update your thinking on something. So here we go. Let's just jump right into this list here. We're going to start with nutrition. First thing that I was wrong about was I thought that caloric restriction was something that was ideal. And this came from some studies that were done on lab rats that ended up in a CrossFit journal article that I read that I thought was scripture. That eating less, so only eating as much as you needed to fuel performance, but not enough for you to gain any body fat, that that was ideal. I also thought that caloric prescriptions for athletes were too high. Now, personally for me, I had some issues with food and I had some fears about gaining weight and I wasn't eating enough. So I was taking my beliefs there and a couple of studies I read and thought, yeah, people are, everyone's eating too much. And now I'm constantly telling people the opposite when it comes to training, letting them know you're probably not eating enough to fuel performance. And again, the, answer, the the whole thing under this is, well, it depends on your goals, right? If you're trying to lose weight, you do need to eat less. But when it comes to performance and just general health, you want to be able to fuel an active lifestyle, which means you probably need to be eating more if you're doing more. So that was something I was wrong about was, was how many calories people actually needed if they were active in training. Next thing I was wrong about, I thought that sugar was the devil. I thought it was addictive. I thought it was something that should be avoided at all cost. And now I think that it's okay if enjoyed in moderation and if it's something that is not a trigger food for you on your diet. So some people can have a soda every once in a while. Some people can have candy or ice cream or something like that in moderation. Other people, if that's a food that you just really can't control, maybe it's better that you just stay away from it. But the blanket prescription that sugar is the devil for everyone, I have not seen in the, in the past 13 years of me in this career and the years before that studying it, I haven't seen anything beyond just conjecture or hyperbole saying that sugar is inherently evil just as itself. It can just, it can lead to weight gain because it's very easy to eat too much of it. It can lead to issues with insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes because people eat too much of it. So it's by itself, not the devil, but it can absolutely become the devil in your diet if you can't moderate it. The next thing I thought was terrible for you was fat. I was afraid of fat whenever I first started out as a coach or even before that as a coach, even whenever I was just, just learning about all this before I was even certified, I was afraid of fat. I thought the fat was fattening. And then I swung the opposite direction once I got in with kind of the, the CrossFit crowd and the paleo crowd where I thought carbs were fattening. That's whenever I kind of get into the, got into the sugar is the devil, carbs are fattening, stay away from starch, don't eat too much fruit, you know, basically just eat green leafy vegetables. That's all the carbs you should be getting. It, that whole line of thinking. And now I know that fat is not fattening and carbs by themselves are not fattening. That They can be enjoyed in moderation and the amount of carbs and fat in your diet are heavily dependent on how you're training 
or whether or not you're training, whether or not you need more fat and less carbs or more carbs and less, or, and less fat. Along those lines, white bread and pasta, I owe you an apology. White pasta is a million times better than whole wheat pasta. I, I really don't eat white bread. I actually prefer whole wheat bread, but I don't think that either of those is going to give you type 2 diabetes. Now, when you eat white bread, it's not going to fill you up like a higher fiber bread is, and you're more likely to eat more of it and get more calories, and they're empty calories. There's not a whole lot of, there's no fiber in it, there's no protein. So it's not a great choice of food, but I don't think that it's bad, and I don't think that white pasta is bad. It's actually delicious. It's way better, better tasting than other pastas, but I thought that if you ate those things that they were going to make you fat. And that's just just simply not true. The next thing that I was wrong about was I over and this is up until even recently, I overvalued protein as an athlete. As a strength athlete, as a functional fitness athlete, as a runner, I always overvalued protein to where now I'm actually eating so I'm, I'm trying to gain muscle right now, and this is actually the least amount of protein that I've ever eaten while gaining muscle mass because I just I so much more value quality carbohydrates and quality fats in my diet and know that I need to be taking in adequate protein. And I do take in more protein than, than most people, but not as much as I was taking in because I overvalued it. It's not the most important thing for you as an athlete or just as a human in general. Protein is extremely important, but just eating tons and tons of protein is not gonna make you healthier, it's not gonna make you perform better, it's not gonna make you live longer. In, in fact, in a lot of cases, studies show that it's the opposite. You, you don't wanna overdo it on protein. Everything in moderation. So that was something I was wrong about was, was protein. Here's one where we might, we might split on opinions here. I do not think in and, in and of themselves that GMOs are harmful. Now, the way that they can be used can be harmful. And this goes along with, I also thought that pesticides were extremely harmful for you. Now, I don't think that we should use them as much as we do. I think we should be trying to use less of them. I think that a small amount is not going to kill somebody, but we shouldn't be using as much as we do. That being said, how do we use less? From everything that I'm seeing, genetic modification is one of the best ways that we can reduce the use of pesticides and still feed a world full of people. And there are documentaries, there are studies, there are, are entire websites that are just compilations of studies that show that there is no evil within the genetically modified organism itself that would cause, you know, cancer or, or some people are saying autism or uh, different uh, gastrointestinal issues or brain issues, all these things that people are saying. There's just, there's no science behind it. That being said, if you're making some, if you're genetically modifying something so you can just douse it with herbicide and pesticides that are harmful to humans, then that's probably not a good use for it. If you're making something, if you're genetically modifying something so that it can be grown with less water in less space, 
and it's it's more environmentally friendly or more sustainable for us to be able to feed as many people as we need to feed, I think that's great. And I don't have a problem with the fact that genetic modification may be slightly sped up because it's done in a lab when genes have been modified over the thousands of years that we have been you know, cultivating plants and you know doing selective selective breeding of plants or splicing plants together we're just doing it in a lab right now for some reason because someone's wearing a lab jacket and you know using uh, really fancy high-tech equipment to genetically modify things that that is inherently evil and but I, I do think this is one of those things where I am open to seeing more about it I think that gen genetic modification is a way to safely feed more people and save the planet that being said if there is different information that comes out about this everything I've seen is saying that it's that it's safe that it's something that can be sustainable but you know, it's so new. So it's one of those things that I'm constantly looking at the, the news coming out about it to see, you know, what the, what the consensus of the scientific community is about it. And there's some really good stuff out there if you look into it. I just wouldn't take what somebody says on Instagram or Facebook or just what you hear about GMOs being bad. I just wouldn't take that as gospel. I would look into it for yourself. Another thing that I feel like I was wrong about was that plant-based diets were not as healthy as omnivorous diets. Meaning, you know, being vegan or being vegetarian or just more plant-based in your diet. I didn't think that I was that was healthy as healthy as an omnivorous diet mainly because of the protein and I, I my overvaluing of protein. And now I think that you can be perfectly healthy at eating a plant-based diet or being vegetarian or even being vegan as long as you make sure that you're hitting all of your macro and micronutrient needs for you as an athlete or a human mover or whatever it is that you're doing. And that might come as a shock to a lot of you uh, who have heard me talk before about how I, you know, I, I, well, I do still hate vegan donuts. Vegan donuts are just terrible. But um, I know that I was wrong in, in my criticism and, and sometimes making fun of, of vegans and vegetarians. And now uh, I'm just as equally making fun of people who think that you should just eat meat, the whole uh, carnivore crowd. I, I will go ahead and make fun of them just as much. It's, it's, it's all in good fun, obviously, because somebody could make fun of me for eating cold burritos out of my pocket uh, in between sessions. So... Uh, when it comes to the plant-based lifestyle, if you can find a way to make sure that you hit all of those things and you have no nutrient deficiencies and you don't have any symptoms of those deficiencies, then then go for it. Just, just make sure that you're doing it healthily, but also understand that not everybody wants to eat like you, and that's okay. So something I was wrong about, but also something that I think everybody needs to be a little cooler to each other about in, in our choice of what it is that we eat. Uh, so that was, that was, I mean, there's probably more when it comes to nutrition. Those are just the first ones that I jotted down. There's, there's so many times that I've been presented with information, uh, you know, intermittent fasting. Uh, I am now not a fan of that. I was only a fan of that for like a week <laughs> until I tried it and it was awful. Uh, and I, I don't think that, that all the science I'm seeing on that shows that it is not any, 
there's no magic behind it. It's just a way of creating a caloric deficit. If that's how you need to create a caloric deficit to be able to lose weight, then go for it. And if that's if eating on that kind of schedule works for you, that's great. But it's there's nothing better about it than just eating less total calories throughout the day, eating you know when normal people eat. That sounds mean. Not normal people eating a no on a schedule that is considered a normal schedule. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner is. Is, is about the same, as long as it's the same amount of calories, the same as eating in an eight-hour window. So the next thing, uh, next two things I was wrong about are in regards to weight and body fat. And the first thing I was wrong about was I thought that chasing low body fat was the key to health. I used to check my body fat all the time, and I wanted to get as low as possible. That was actually my first stated goal. For when I first went to a trainer back at Shepherd University when I was... I maybe just turned 18 years old and I checked my body fat and I said, great, how do I get that lower? And that became an obsession for me. And now that my body fat has ranged from six up to you know 20, lower 20s whenever I was at my heaviest in strongman, I realized that, you know, having moderate body fat. So, you know, right now I, I typically walk around somewhere between like 14 and and 16 uh, or 17, depending on what time of year it is, what my goals are. And I've realized that having a moderate level of body fat, that you can still be very strong, very fast, have lots of endurance, very powerful, quick, be a great athlete, be skilled, all of these things that I thought came along with low body fat, I realized body fat doesn't have a whole lot to do with those. It's more about, you know, strength training, uh, skill training, practice, uh, cardiovascular training, all of the, the adaptations that come along with a good training program really don't have anything to do with how lean you are. Unless you're trying to do something like gymnastics or something where being much lighter but still having a high level of muscle mass is great. Same thing with swimming, where you do have to have low body fat for that. But for general health, I don't think that just getting your body fat lower is the key to being healthy. I think finding a healthy body fat for you, making sure that your your blood markers are good, that your blood pressure, your resting heart rate, and then on top of that, just how you feel on a daily basis, how you perform, how you feel like you look. You know, a lot of that is is just aesthetics where you feel comfortable with your body fat. And I think that each person needs to find out what works best for them. But also, you know, making sure that you're being truthful with yourself when it comes to your health. You know, whether you are too lean or you, whether you are carrying too much body fat, that, you know, really you know, seek out some metrics to let you know that you actually are healthy at the weight that you're at because everybody's a little bit different. So figure out what works best for you when it comes to that. But low body fat is not the key to health. The next thing that I was wrong about was I thought that a lower body weight was healthier slash I was afraid of gaining weight. I thought that just being smaller was better. And I don't think that being as muscular as possible is necessarily healthy either. But... I was always afraid of gaining weight because it was kind of tied with the body fat thing whenever I was a, whenever I was younger. And now that I've competed in multiple strength sports at very different weights and levels of body fat, uh, I and I've gone up and down in my weight for these different things I've competed in, and I've realized, you know what? 
you gain weight, you gain weight and you can lose it. And if you lose weight, you can always gain weight back again. And, and it's not this concrete thing. I used to think of things as, you know, like if I was doing this now, I had to do this thing forever. And now, you know, you can take periods where you weigh less or you weigh more depending on what your goals are. And, and if you're competing in something or if you're just trying to, you know, get your weight down for the summer or if you want to put on some muscle over the uh, the colder months and you know that you're probably going to gain a little bit of body fat with that. It's just being okay with with weight fluctuations as long as I was healthy it was something that I that I had to learn that I was wrong about before. The next things are, are that I was wrong about are in regards to training. So I used to think that if you didn't go through a full range of motion on every lift, that that lift was, was pointless. And again, this came from, from kind of being in the CrossFit crowd. I thought that partial rep squats, so like high box squats, quarter squats, rack holds, uh, then with deadlifts, you know, block pulls, uh, lockouts, uh, lockouts on bench press. If you all don't understand what, what I'm talking about when I use these terms. Basically, you're, you're moving the bar in a shorter range of motion than an entire repetition would normally look like. And I thought that those were pointless. And Strongman really opened up my eyes to that. Strongman really opened my eyes to a lot of things that, you know, being strong and, and lifting can look way different than what I thought it needed to look like. And the strongest that I ever was whenever I was doing strongman, I was doing a lot of partial repetitions, you know, bench pressing half of the way down or, or pressing a bar that started on a rack right by my eyes or doing a squat down to a box that was above parallel. That to me was sacrilege before I got into strongman. And, and that was only in the past, you know, three years that I had my mind changed on that. Another thing that I didn't value enough back whenever I was in the functional fitness competition crowd was I didn't value isolation movements. So curls, tricep extensions, leg curls, leg extension, inner outer thigh exercises, all of those things that move just one joint at a time, they're considered an isolation exercises. I didn't think that those were needed in anyone's program. Now, for a lot of people who are just starting working out, I tend to focus on compound movements. I think that that's a better use of your time. But if you have extra time or if you have certain goals, or if you're trying to bring up a lagging muscle group that you want to get stronger or bigger or more defined, doing isolation movements is a great addition to your program. And I was very wrong about those. So I'm sorry, curls. I'm sorry, tricep extensions. I should not have made fun of you the way I did whenever I was a younger coach. The next thing that I really overvalued and the, these next couple, all and I keep coming back to this, all come back to when I was coaching and competing in CrossFit in that circle. And I'm sure, I mean, any of you who have been in that circle or who are in that circle know that coming from top down from, you know, CrossFit headquarters, it very much was a our way or the highway type thing. Uh, this is probably a whole episode I could get into this, but probably, <laughs> it, I probably should stay out of it. Um, but, but when it comes to something like mobility or corrective movements or warm-ups, there's very much a line of thinking that comes with that crowd that I bought into as a younger coach that now years later I realized I was wrong in thinking. First of those being, I overvalued stretching and rolling out when it came to mobility training. 
Now, absolutely, I think that everyone should strive to have great mobility. I want you to have a great squat. I want you to have a great overhead position. I want you to be able to move in and out of great positions with ease. I don't want you to walk around with stiff muscles. I don't want you groaning every time you get up. You should be able to you know, work out without uh, feeling like you're going to pull something because everything feels so tight. But when it comes to gaining mobility, I used to think that just you know really stretching and not just you know, static stretching, but all of the mobilizations that were big with like the, the supple leopard crowd, I overvalued those. I do think that they're, they're good. I do think that they can be part of a program, but I just don't place the importance on them that I used to. I thought that just those type of mobilizations would cure anything that was wrong with you. I also thought that rolling out, so lacrosse ball work, foam roller work, smashing things with whatever implement you want to use, I thought that that was the cure for musculoskeletal issues. And now I know that it's not. It can be a piece. It can definitely work. It can definitely help loosen things up. But I don't think that that's where your mobility stuff needs to peak. I think that that mobilizations and soft tissue work can be a part of your mobility work. But I think more time needs to be spent on actual active range of motion work and you'll see it a lot with the way we program with straight shot where we have you do exercises for you know your hips or your shoulder where you're actually moving the joint through a range of motion with control using your musculature around the joint and not just you know using a band to stretch it into an area or just smashing it with the lacrosse ball or foam roller that being said we still use mobilizations in the program depending on the client or depending on what the program is, but that's, you know, very, very, very small part of the program. The next thing that I was wrong about was I undervalued or even just discounted completely corrective exercise movements. So think of the prehab stuff that you see in straight shot programs. Uh, if you're a straight shot athlete, if you're training with us, or think, you know, physical therapy type exercises, external rotation exercises for your shoulder, ankle drills, hip range of motion drills, uh, you know, all different types of core bracing drills. I didn't think that those were needed. I thought that you just, you know, you did your mobility, you really stretched something, and then you got into the workout. And back when I was doing CrossFit, that's what I did. And I I didn't get injured a lot. I feel like I, because of my form, I always focused on, on good form. But I definitely had some nagging injuries here and there that were due to a lack, that I feel like they were due to me having a good, uh, good control of my body throughout movements or good stability. That as I started incorporating more of those uh, corrective exercise things, I realized, oh, wow, I, my, my shoulders really could uh, could use some end range of motion work to help me stabilize my shoulders better in this position or my hips or my ankles or something. Uh, at the same time, I, I went through a phase where I overemphasized those probably five years ago whenever I had a lower back injury and I thought, you know what, I need to start doing, you know, like 20 minutes of of corrective exercises to, you know, warm up. Because uh, those corrective exercises w w were what got me back to lifting after my back injury. So I thought, well, I'm just going to keep these in my program. Now I know, depending on the person, you might need a lot of corrective exercises to correct musculoskeletal injuries or issues 
or stiffness that you have coming into a program. But once you kind of move past that point, the goal shouldn't be to always have to do those exercises. And I know some people who like those long warm-ups just because they make them feel good. And I'm not going to judge you for that. And there are even some athletes that I program for who just prefer longer warm-ups, which is fine if you have the time for that. But I don't want to extrapolate that out to everybody saying that everyone needs to do a half-hour warm-up. Some people just might take longer than others. So I used to undervalue corrective movements, and then I feel like I may have overvalued them for a bit. And I feel like now I've found a balance with that, and and I definitely modulate it depending on the person. So that being said, next thing I was wrong about, I used to think that everyone needed a long warm-up. Even if they didn't have any corrective issues or form concerns, I thought everybody needed a great warm-up. I will be totally honest with you today for my warm-up before I did a lot of overhead pressing was I got my shoulders warmed up with some, with some arm circles and I pressed the empty bar overhead like 30 times and then I gradually worked up to my first set. Now, I don't have issues pressing overhead. I have been doing Zoom sessions with clients and moving since early this morning. So I was pretty warmed up. I made sure that nothing felt weird as I was pressing. I didn't feel like I had any restrictions that I needed to clear up in my lats or my T-spine or anything like that. So I just got right into my workout. And if you do not have any mobility concerns or corrective exercise needs or stability issues that we're trying to teach you how how to get a control of on your mechanics, you don't need to do a ton of warming up. And so that was, I was wrong about that before where I thought that everyone just needed to do these long warm-ups so that no one ever got hurt. And now I know that getting hurt in a workout is so much more than just your level of mobility or even your form to an extent. A lot of it has to do with how heavy you're lifting and your level of fatigue and whether or not you have increased your load uh, too quickly. So that goes into play with your form and your mobility when it comes to whether or not you're going to get injured or an exercise. So I don't think that not warming up, you're automatically going to get injured. I think you're, you're probably going to be at a uh, disadvantage going into your workout if you aren't warmed up and you really need to warm up your stabilizing muscles or you take your joints through a better range of motion. But if you have great range of motion and you know how to stabilize the right joints at the right time, on your your exercises, then you don't need to warm up as much. Next thing I was very wrong about was I thought that bodybuilders and people like triathletes or endurance athletes, I thought that they weren't functional athletes. The very elitist point of view that I fell into, you know, talking seven, eight years ago, when I was early on in my uh, short stint as a, as a CrossFit coach. And this was straight from, you know, the, the what is fitness article that you can find anywhere that was published in the CrossFit journal in the early 2000s or mid 2000s, where they were talking about, you know, what is fitness and is a bodybuilder actually fit and is a triathlete actually fit? Well, because yeah, just cause you can do that, you still can't lift very heavy as a triathlete or yeah, you're a bodybuilder, but you can't go out and run a 10 K and when it comes to what is functional, if you are able to do your everyday activities without being unduly tired or getting hurt trying to do everyday activities and you are enjoying the sport that you're competing in or the lifestyle that you're living and you 
are healthy, meaning you know the, the absence of of a disease or a condition, and you feel awesome, and you so you're feeling the way you want to feel, you look the way you want to look, and you're performing the way you want to perform. That to me is you know you're you're functional, <laughs> you're doing what you want to do. So when it comes to bodybuilders and triathletes and endurance athletes. I don't look down on them like I did. I was a very elitist point of view, and I was wrong for thinking that. And the same thing with, with CrossFitters. I feel like they are specialized to their... CrossFit athletes are specialized to their sport, and that's awesome. They're doing things that are great for them in that sport. Compared to the way that I lift and the way that I train people, it's, it's very different. But I'm not going to look down on that and say, you know, well... Uh, well, CrossFitters, you don't do anything rotational and you don't do any side-to-side movements and you don't do anything with tempo work and there's all of these training things that you don't do that I feel are functional, but you don't do those so you're not a functional athlete. No, it's just I have a different way of training people that I think you know helps people in a different way and that's that's okay and I don't feel like that we need to judge each other as coaches or athletes because we do things slightly differently. So that's that's what I have now in regards to training. And again, I'm probably going to end this thing and think of like 20 other things I'm wrong about. Uh, and this comes out, so I'm recording this on a Thursday night. This comes out on a Friday morning. I will probably wake up tomorrow and uh, and read something and realize I may be wrong. I may possibly be wrong, be wrong about something else. And uh, and again, before I get to these last two things that I that I was wrong about, um, I want to make sure that you understand there's a difference between being easily persuaded in and out of things and consciously looking over the things that you believe and being open and actually seeking out information to prove or disprove your viewpoint. And if you're constantly just looking at things to back up your viewpoint, that's not how this works. When you are in something and you hear something that is contrary to what you think, you definitely should go look at that and see, well, does that person have a valid argument is there you know a, a whole pile of studies behind what this person is saying compared to my you know one study or one article that i read that can lead me to change how i think about something so i'm not saying that these are things that i've flip-flopped on these are things that took me a long time to come to i keep referencing these you know five years seven years ago three years ago you know some of this stuff took me a long time to change my mind on and seeing a lot of stuff come out to where I finally was able to go, yeah, you know what? There's enough information here that I need to change the way I was thinking about that. One of these things is when it comes to coaching, and this is this is something that is very specific. I thought that the farther out your knees were on a squat, the stronger or safer that squat was. And now I know that having your knees way outside of your feet is can be just as bad as having your knees caving in. But also, your knees caving in on a squat doesn't mean that your knees are going to explode. There's, there's better ways of squatting, but I don't think that that's instantly going to explode your ACL. I literally used to think that I would explode your ACL if your knees caved in. And again, a line of thinking coming from the functional fitness crowd that now, you know, moderation. Keep your knees in line with your toes when you're squatting. If they're a little bit out, that's fine. If you're in Olympic lifting, they're going to need to be out a little bit anyway. Uh, but for the most of you, you know, squatting with your toes, mostly straightforward and your knees in line with your toes or the out, the outer your outer toes when you squat is going to be a safe and effective squat for you. 
The last piece I'll keep brief because I'm actually really interested in putting together a whole podcast for it was I used to think that more was better when it comes to your training. And there's something called maximum recovery volume. What is the most amount of work that you can do in a given period of time that your body can recover from? And I thought that chasing that was the key to fitness. Again, harking back to my CrossFit days. How much can you possibly do and be able to recover from? Because obviously, you're going to get better if you just do more. There's another side of this that is called your minimum effective dose. So you have your maximal recovery volume and your minimum effective dose. And I am now looking a lot more into what is the least amount that somebody has to do to achieve their goals. That being said, again, it depends on your goals. Also, it also depends on, do you really enjoy training? I love working out. I love the actual physical act of squatting heavy, of pressing overhead, of doing pull-ups. Those are fun activities for me. So for me, I know that I probably exercise more than I need to. I exercise less than I possibly could because I'm, I've, I've very much value recovery, but I am very interested in finding out for general population, for athletes, for everybody, what is a minimum effective dose? Because I want to be able to help people with, when it comes to their schedules, with their equipment needs, obviously right now with people working out at home. This is something I've thought about all year long as I've been training with limited equipment is what do you really need when it comes to how much dosage of volume you're getting in a week? How much do you actually need in order to achieve your fitness goals? And something I know I was wrong about before was I overvalued high volume. Just do more, do more, do more, do more, and learn to recover. And now I realize that you don't need to do as much as you probably think you do in order to, to be in shape and to, or to get in shape and stay in shape. Uh, but um, I am going to leave it at that because I really have a whole lot of thoughts on it that I want to put out in a podcast and possibly have some somebody else come on and talk with me about it who, uh, who understands even more about the, the difference between those two things, minimal effective dose and maximum recovery volume, um, so that I can give you all an even better opinion on it. Because yeah, this is one of those things that is those, I don't know everything about it, and I, I want to know more about it. So thank you all so much for listening today. I really appreciate you all sitting here for the past 38 minutes of me explaining how wrong I was about so many things. And I hope that you can take this and use this in all aspects of your life to look at the things that you believe and, and think and, and hold you know, strongly to on these opinions and when you're presented with new information, alternative information, updated science, when you're presented with that, that's not a cue for you to just immediately change your mind, but it's also not a cue for you to get defensive. Be open, consider new things, research things, not just YouTube videos and things on Facebook. Research things, look into things, and consider changing your mind you won't always, and sometimes you will. And then be okay that you that be okay with admitting when you were wrong. 
So thank you so much again for listening. I really appreciate it. If you could leave me a rating on whatever platform you're currently listening to me on right now, that would be awesome. Please share this podcast with a friend, especially if you enjoy hearing me say how wrong I was so many times about this podcast. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Straight Shot Training, you can head over to straightshottraining.com. Uh, if you would love to converse with me more about anything that we've talked about today, please send me a message, Johnny, J-O-N-N-Y, at straightshottraining.com. Uh, I'd love to chat more with you about my opinions on these on these different things. Uh, and if we have a difference in opinion, I, I welcome conversation. I would love to chat more with you about it. Again, thank you so much, and have a great week, everybody. Thank you.